Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Back in the comfort of my own Washington, D.C. one-bedroom apartment. Home this week, not outside. Freezing my butt off out west in some national parks. Had a great time, but glad to be back and back with you guys in some comfortable conditions for a change today on the show it's a big one we got ernie francis jr of trans am fame and srx this past summer he's on to chat with us about his illustrious career seven time trans am champ but you guys may know him more from srx this past summer so we'll hear about that and what sparked his interest in racing in the first place so much ground to cover with ernie and it was a great great conversation plus we got texas Eh. To recap, and Kansas to preview as the round of eight rolls on. But before we do any of that, you know what we're doing. We're paying homage to the number 33-0 with a familiar name that you definitely have heard of, but maybe not associated with the 30. Papa Siegel's got more in this week's Wayback segment. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 130. Today, we look back on the multifaceted career of Michael Waltrip. Waltrip's an interesting character. I commend for your education and viewing pleasure the Blink of an Eye documentary regarding Dale Earnhardt's death, which features Waltrip at length. I think his abilities as a driver were always underestimated, likely due in part to his larger-than-life older brother, whose significant talents were matched by his mouth and desire for attention. Daryl Waltrip is incredibly candid in the documentary about how he wasn't the best or most supportive brother for Michael for purely selfish reasons regarding his own racing career. So while big brother Daryl got all the attention and sponsors, Mikey struggled with underfunded teams and equipment. 265 of those races from 1987 to 1995 came in the 30 car. You might recall the bright yellow Country Time Lemonade livery. Waltrip's struggles during those years was punctuated by what might be the most horrific crash a driver ever walked away from. During a bush race in the spring of 1990, he made contact with Robert Presley, then crashed into a fixed gate in the outside wall of the exit of Turn 2. These were different times, my friends before safer walls and other crash-absorbing devices. You ever see one of those government crash test dummy videos? Waltrip's crash was like that. His car literally went from full speed to full stop, disintegrating on contact and collapsing in on itself. I think everybody who witnessed the crash thought Waltrip was dead, including his brother, who rushed across the track to check on Michael. To everyone's amazement, he walked away with only minor cuts and bruises. Waltrip soldiered on following the crash, waiting for his big break to come. 
It finally did from a seemingly unlikely source. Over the years, Dale Earnhardt had taken notice of the younger Waltrip's skills, especially on super speedways, and hired him in 2001 to drive the Napa Auto Parts car. Again, the Blink of an Eye documentary is must-see viewing and goes into detail regarding the Earnhardt-Waltrip relationship. So it was on that fateful day in 2001 at Daytona that Dale Earnhardt served as blocker for his own cars, driven by Waltrip and Dale Jr., which finished first and second. It was Waltrip's first-ever points-paying win in the sport's biggest race, no less. But the joy of the win quickly was extinguished as word of Earnhardt's fatal crash spread. It's clear from the documentary that Waltrip still hasn't fully recovered from it. Waltrip's next chapter was as a car owner and as Toyota's entry into NASCAR in 2007. While he recruited all-star talent in the form of Dale Jarrett to drive one of his three cars, Waltrip's team got off to a bumpy start. During qualifying for that year's 500, inspectors found evidence that an unspecified oxygenate fuel additive had been added to the cars to increase their performance. Translation, jet fuel, one of the oldest cheats in the book. The cars were confiscated, penalties assessed, team members ejected and suspended, and Waltrip's time as a car owner will always have that asterisk attached to it. Today, we continue to enjoy Waltrip from the announcer booth or pit road during Fox-covered races. That's all for this week. Back to you, Doof. Thank you, Dad. Good old Mikey Waltrip. Had a lot of different things going on in his racing career. And as you said, Dad, that crash, I remember, I mean, I didn't watch it live, but I've seen footage of it and stuff. And that was one of the worst crashes that I can ever remember seeing in my time covering and, and watching NASCAR. Let's start off this episode as we always do with a good old-fashioned Texas Motor Speedway recap. Not a whole lot to talk about with this race because, well, it's Texas after all. <laughs> Kyle Larson punches his ticket to the championship four, though. Probably was good to go already on points, but now he is locked in. And I shouldn't even say that because last year we thought Harvick was, but clearly he wasn't because he didn't make it. Dominated the race, won all three stages. Big shocker, right? Kyle Larson, eighth win of the season, and he is championship four bound for the first time in his career. It's awesome. You know, I mean, we we had a good points lead or whatever uh, from the cutoff going into it, but still, you know, Harvick had his issues last year and didn't make the final four, so that's, that, that will always be on my mind. But um, we had a fast, fast car today, and, you know, we had a, we had a, good couple stages so even if I didn't come out with the lead or the the win or whatever I, I wanted to play it smart and uh, take what I could get but you know I got good shoves from behind me every restart and allowed me to get clear into the lead into one every time and, and then do some blocking for a few laps so um, fun on all those restarts and and we had a great race car to uh, allow me to be aggressive with the blocks and 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 fast too to stay out in front of William get this Kyle Larson has led over a quarter of all laps run in 2021. Let that sink in for a sec. This man has led over one quarter 
over 25% of every single lap that has been run in the Cup Series this season. The man is on another level. The man is having one of the greatest single seasons in NASCAR history, so we got to give him his flowers, and he's the favorite to Phoenix for a reason, right? I mean, I know that we're going to see different things play out on that specific day, but nobody, and I mean nobody, would be surprised if we get to the end of Phoenix and Kyle Larson is the one holding the trophy. How about the playoff drivers being raced by non-playoff drivers? That's been a big debate and point of contention this week for multiple sides. You got Reddick and Byron. You got Briscoe and Hamlin feuding on Instagram. You got Chase Elliott and Kevin Harvick, who still are beefing a little bit. You got Daniel Suarez and Martin Truex Jr., who had a little incident late in the going on Sunday at Texas. Where do you guys stand on it? Do you think that the playoff drivers should get more respect? Do you think that the playoff drivers are expecting too much from the non-playoff drivers? I kind of fall somewhere in the middle. And we talked about it this week on the morning drive on Sirius. But, you know, there's incentives and contracts that say, hey, if you get X amount of top 10 finishes, you get uh, a monetary bonus. So let's say Daniel Suarez, completely hypothetical. Let's say if he gets five top 10s this season, he gets an extra 200 grand. You don't think that he's going to be racing hard for that spot, even if it's a playoff driver? He's going to say, excuse me, give him the boot scoop boogie and get out the way. Because he wants that 200 grand. So you don't know what are in these contracts. They're incentive laden to certain extents. And just because a playoff driver happens to be having more on the line to the public, that doesn't mean that behind closed doors, other drivers that are not in the playoffs have something on the line too. So we'll see how that goes moving forward into Kansas this weekend. Truck series was off once again, but the Xfinity series was back in action. And John Hunter Nemechek was back in victory lane. No stranger to that this season in the Truck Series. Only his second ever Xfinity Series win. He's running a limited schedule this second back half of the year with Toyota teams, Joe Gibbs Racing, and Sam Hunt Racing. Got Sam Hunt Racing in the 26th, their best ever finish at Richmond in the top five. And he wins for Joe Gibbs Racing in the 54 car this past weekend at Texas. It was big for him. And, I mean, he's already announced to go back to Kyle Busch Motorsports next year in the truck series. So it's not like this is sending a warning shot across the bow saying, Hey, Xfinity owners, Hey cup owners, I am capable of winning races. We've known that for a while. He's going to be back in the truck next year, but this just shows once again, that he's not just capable of doing it in the truck series. He can do it on bigger stages as well. It's definitely been a good week being able to announce that I was coming back to Calvish Motorsports for another year. Um, it's been an amazing year over there on the truck side, fighting for the championship and race wins each and every weekend. Um, it's an amazing opportunity for myself to uh, be able to come run this 54 uh, Toyota Supra. Um, I'm I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying the opportunities uh, for, for myself this year. As everyone knows, um, I, I left the Cup Series to come back to the Truck Series to try and win races. And um, we, we had some of these races on our radar uh, for the Xfinity Series in, in Joe Gibbs Racing Equipment um, with Toyota early on. And um, we were able to put a deal together and, and come race. And uh, for me, I, I want to be in a winning contending vehicle every single week. And I don't want to put myself in a position where um, we, we can't win races and, and go back to running 20th to 25th. So um, I'm having fun. I'm smiling. It's been a great year. It's been an, an amazing year uh, personally and uh, professionally and hope to continue it. Before we throw it over to my chat with Ernie Francis Jr. this week, as always, I got to give a shout out to Rhino Classifieds. You guys know they came on the scene recently with the bang. They gave away Vaughn Gittin Jr.'s drift truck. And Rhino was created by the founder of Racing Junk, 
because he wanted to create a more streamlined buying and selling app that allowed users to see what they wanted rather than all those ads and the random crap that nobody wants to see. So head on over to rhino.co, sign up for a free account. You can find the car part, race car, classic car, modified street machine, whatever it is you're looking for, or you can post yours as well. Rhino.co, classified for racers, built by racers. Interview time. I don't know if I did that last week when I threw over to Sammy Smith, but anyways, let's talk to Arnie Francis Jr., seven-time Trans Am champion, SRX standout. He wins a race earlier this summer in SRX. Nobody really knew about him going into it, and he's competing with these legends of motorsports. Well, seven-time Trans Am champ, that's a pretty big deal as well. So you guys better take notice, if you haven't already, of this man. We talked about a lot of different things in this conversation. What got him into Trans Am, how those cars are similar to the next-gen car, why he hasn't decided or tried to go other routes in racing. Hint, hint, he's super freaking young. His time in NASCAR with the Drive for Diversity program, whether or not he'd be open to more NASCAR starts in the future or going the open wheel route in IndyCar, his relationship with Willie T. Ribs, so much ground to cover in this conversation, and I so appreciate Ernie for giving me so much time. So I'll stop rambling and get out the way and let you hear my chat with seven-time Trans Am champ and legend, Ernie Francis Jr. Pleasure to welcome on to this show this week, an old friend from the K&N days, but you guys probably know him from this past summer and the superstar racing experience. He is younger than me, yet he is a seven-time Trans Am champion. Say that one more time. Seven-time Trans Am champ, Ernie Francis Jr. is on with us, and he's spending his lunch break with me. In a busy, busy day, busy time of year, instead of spending time eating your food, relaxing, you're spending it with me, so you really must like me, Ernie. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's been a while since we talked, so we had to catch up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, figured, you know, might as well spend lunch break with you. Wow, so nice. You, you, you haven't changed a bit. You know that? Since we saw each other at Watkins Glen in what, like 2018? You're still that yeah, I think calm, it was cool, collected guy. Wow. Glad to know nothing's changed. Yep. Yeah, only, only a few years passed. That's about it. Maybe beard got a little bit thicker. Yeah, a little bit. It feels like it's been a long time, though. And I, I remember that morning. It was raining, and I was talking to you in the garage, and I was saying, hey, uh, you probably want it to keep raining, don't you? And you said yes. Obviously, it didn't keep raining, which sucked. But I remember those days. We're going to get into that. Everything in between, from Trans Am to SRX to GT, like everything, because you are one of the most eclectic race car drivers, I think, in the world right now, which is really interesting to think about. You have done so much. You continue to do so much. And I want to go all the way back to when it started. I know that your dad is the one that kind of got you into racing and helped you catch the bug, so to speak. So let's go back to him. How did he catch the bug? How did he get into racing in the first place? So my dad's always been into cars and uh, performance parts. Um, you know, he got into racing by uh, just his friends back in the day, back in the 80s. You know, they were with the SECA club. Uh, doing autocrosses and doing uh, doing road course events. My dad used to race a Mitsubishi Starion back in the day. Damn. And, uh, you know, he started making some performance parts for it. And uh, his friend said, hey, why don't you patent that and, you know, make it a little company. And uh, that's how the racing team started originally. Um, so it started off as a speed shop and then uh, supported my dad's racing that he did uh, when he was younger. Um, and then, you know, it grew up into, uh, into me getting into racing and now the whole team uh, in Trans Am that we have several drivers that race for us there. Um, and then, you know, I ran my Trans Am program 
through the team for the last uh, eight years. So uh, it, it's grown a long, a long way since uh, for how it started a long time ago, back in the 80s. So he, he started that in the 80s. So do you know how old he was when he kind of started seeing this vision and making it actually into something tangible with the race team? Yeah, he, he, he was in his uh, mid-20s when he started doing it. Okay. Um, but he didn't really see how far it would go. It was yeah. more of just like a fun little hobby. Um, you know, and then, and then it started into being a just performance shop and business. Um, but seeing where it's going now with the level of racing uh, that we've done this past year, um, it's definitely gone a lot further than we thought it would. So he starts doing that in his mid-20s. You come into the picture, come into the world, and you are a seven-time Trans Am champ, and you are in your mid-20s because you started at four. You started Trans Am racing when you were, what, I guess 16, 15 or something like yeah, that years 16. old? Yeah, 16. So racing, I mean, was it always going to be racing for you? Was there any question that you were going to do anything else with your life other than this? Racing was always the first option for sure. Um, yeah. You know, growing up, um, being a little kid, I would go to the racetrack and watch my dad drive. I would grow up at our shop uh, working on cars. So I was always around cars, and that was my big uh, hobby and passion. So uh, I was really just in love with uh, with cars in general. And then, um, you know, I got into racing at first. My dad got me a go-kart when I was four years old, and that uh, scared, uh, scared the crap out of me. I, I cried. I did not want to drive it. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. I didn't, wanna, I didn't even want to touch it at all. He had to force me into the seat. And then uh, once I got going, then I started liking it. And, uh, you know, fell in love with it from there. And then, uh, you know, it's been any, anything with wheels uh, since then. You know, I'm all yeah. over. So, Why were you so scared of it? You were just a four-year-old kid. I, I don't know. know. I think I was better? a four-year-old four kid, and I was scared because, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Wow. Well, clearly, you got over that. So once you got over it yep. and you started enjoying it, you're like, wow, this is pretty fun. Your dad, your dad was probably sweating for a little bit there. He's like, uh-uh. He has to be a racer. This is all I've yep. ever known. He has to do it. What was mom thinking yeah. at this time? You know, she also, uh, she had no idea how far it would go now. I mean, we were, you know, back in the day when I was go-karting and stuff, um, she would get nervous. She, you know, she liked it, but she, she was also just thinking, oh, it's just something that I do for fun and stuff. But, yeah. you know, we never, we never thought it would, it would go this far. Um, yeah. And now it's turned into uh, something that really uh, is my whole, my whole life and, and what I want to do for the rest of my life. And uh, my whole family supports me. Um, with it and you know they come out to all my races and it's turned into something something really cool so once we established ourselves in go-karts right we got over that initial fear we're feeling good we're feeling fine what were the steps that you guys as a family and you behind the wheel took to get up the ranks into trans am where you made a name for yourself did we go to legends did we race in other you know different types of go-karts what, what mm -hmm. were the different steps and the different types of vehicles that you raced in yeah, so I went from uh, racing go-karts, and then when I uh, turned 13, I started racing cars, transitioned into racing uh, Spec Miata, which Done. is, uh, you know, Spec uh, MX-5 Miatas. Love um, Spec Miata you know, racing. Yep, yeah, they run them in uh, SECA Club, NASA, mm -hmm. um, a few different organizations down here that, that run them. And, uh, you know, that's where I got my start. I was, the first, uh, I was the first of the younger kids that they allowed to start racing in SECA and in NASA. How old were you? Um, now I was 13 years old when I first okay. first went out there. Now you see kids 13 to 15 all the time out there racing. You're a trailblazer. But, uh, but when when I did it, I was the first one. You know, yeah. Um, it it took a ton of uh, ride-alongs and you know the officials watching and and being on probation and and stuff for them <laughs> to finally approve it to where I was allowed to go and race. And you know yeah. they just saw me as another racer out there, regardless of my uh, my age. 
so yeah, transitioned into uh, into spec Miatas when I was 13. I ran that for two years, and then when I turned 15, I started racing in the Pirelli World Challenge Series, um, in GTS and in a touring car. Um, I ran that for, uh, I believe, three years. And while I was doing that, when I turned 16, I started racing in Trans Am as well. And that's kind of where our Trans Am uh, venture started. Uh, won our first championship, um, I believe, when I was 16, 16 yep. or 17, yep. won our first championship. And, uh, you know, been winning them ever since. When you had to convince those uh, officials to let you run as a as a 13-year-old or whatever it was, were you nervous that you weren't going to get through to them? Like, do you think that they were stuck in their ways and they weren't going to make an exception for you? Or did you always know that you were going to be able to do it? I, I think um, what just mattered was how I did on track. I think as long as I, and it wasn't even about performance or about winning races on track. Um, as long as I could prove that I could be a safe driver on track, right, you know, I wasn't right. a 13-year-old kid that's, you know, going to PlayStation dive bomb everybody yeah. right into turn one. <laughs> um, so once once I got through with that and you know they rode along with me and and did all that they were they were fine with it and it didn't take too much convincing. Yeah. Okay. So let's fast forward a little bit here and now talk about the team that you drive for and your dad's team Breathless Racing, right? I find it interesting because you are a mechanic for the team, but you also drive the cars and you also technically are working for your dad. There's a lot of different things going on there. Let's tackle that last one first. What's it like to be quote unquote working for your dad and for your family, even though we understand that it's not really work. I mean, this is kind of a lifestyle thing, but on paper, yeah. you kind of work for your dad, which is interesting. Yeah, no, it, 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 it is interesting. You know, um, working with a parent is always uh, weird because, you know, there's <laughs> never, you know, at what point is it your boss and then your parent? So we always exactly. kind of uh, go through that together. The lines are um, blurred. Yeah, so, yeah, the lines are blurred there. But yeah, full time I work at our shop. Um, doing all the prep work on on most of the race cars and whatever else we have in the shop going on, um, so that's kind of what I do there. Um, and then obviously, you know, I've raced the race for the team um, with our Trans Am program for the last eight years, and uh, and I run uh, most of the work on my car as well. Um, we have guys that work for us now. We have a full time crew that goes to all the events, but I still do a majority of the decision making and final setup work on on my own car for me. Do you enjoy like working on the cars and tinkering on them and trying to make them handle well? Do you enjoy that part of it? Because I, I take you as a guy who enjoys that type of stuff and doesn't like to just hop in and go race. You like to actually work on them. Yeah, especially, you know, growing up around the race shop and around, uh, you know, the speed shop we had, you know, I was always walk, uh, watching my dad work on cars and, you know, I would help him. I would hold the flashlight or grab him tools. Um, mm -hmm. So that was always something that I enjoyed doing. Um and you know, it's just a personal hobby of my of mine myself. Also, like I have uh, my personal street car that I've built over the past uh, two years. It's just fun. I like working on it myself. I've done everything to it, um, so I enjoy getting getting your hands dirty and and working on the cars and and building something and then being you know proud of what you what you did at the end of the day. So something I definitely enjoy doing. You know, when I go to the racetrack, um, you know, it was weird with like SRX and and with the uh, FR Americas program I, yeah. I raced with totally different teams. Um, and you know, I don't have to work on the car at all and I just show up and have to just race, but I find myself wanting to help with stuff. Like I want to, yeah. like, let me, let me do something like, let me clean the car at least or, <laughs> yeah. or do something. So, so I feel like I did something on the car. Cause it's weird. Not, not doing anything. Do people have to tell you to like relax and chill out? Be like, Ernie, it's fine. We got it. You're, you're not supposed yeah. to be working on stuff. When, when I ran with the SRX program, uh, the first, the first event, it was like that, you know, I was around, 
the crew the entire time trying to uh-huh. help them with anything I could and, and talk with them. And they're like, hey, just, you know, go go chill in the driver's lounge. And <laughs> when it's time to go on track, we'll go get you. And that's it. And it's like, all right, well, it's kind of weird. <laughs> Feeling like a big time driver for once, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a weird feeling. Yeah. I had to start getting used to it towards the uh, towards the end of the SRX season. Yeah, I bet. What's the uh, what's the street car that you drive that you've been working on? I have a uh, 2006 Corvette Z06. Um, yeah, I've uh, built a 427 in it. Runs on E85. I've done rear end gears, suspension. Um, you know, gone through the clutch. Uh, it's on a drag pack and skinnies up front. It's like a whole whole setup. It's do you ever like take it out on the streets and are, do you like race it at all? Or is that too illegal for you? I don't race the thing on the street. I just drive it around. I enjoy it on the street a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, drive it around. It gets a lot of looks. It, it turns heads. So it's fun yeah. to drive. Uh, I do take it to the drag strip and I run it out uh-huh. there. Um, and I go to a bunch of car shows and stuff with it. So that's kind of a, a little personal hobby I do with me and my friends. That's what I was going to say too. So, you know, lifestyle work, so to speak is racing. But I find that a lot of racers away from the track when they're trying to relax or unwind, it also has something to do with racing, whether it's tinkering on cars, whether it's going to race cars. So for you, totally unsurprising to me, right? That is what you do for fun and to unwind and relax is still has to do with racing and still has to do with cars and automotive vehicles. It just happens to be something that's in a non-competitive sense. And that's how you relax. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I like to enjoy working on the car. You know, I have my friends come over to our to our shop and we'll work on all their cars uh, together. We'll put one of their cars up on the lift and they got some parts they want to put on and we'll spend the night doing it. And it's just fun to uh, to relax like that. You know, there's no not as much pressure of, you know, Definitely. this car has to race around the racetrack and win a race <laughs> uh, in a few hours. You know, it's just hanging out and getting some stuff done and then we get to drive it around after it and see how it is. So. So as I mentioned, Ernie, you are a seven-time Trans Am champion. That obviously speaks for itself, but uh, selfishly and for the listeners, I want you to take us through and tell us what a Trans Am car is like, what what it's comparable to, what it drives like, kind of the history of the series, so to speak, because I feel like, and it's partly my fault as well, Trans Am doesn't get a lot of appreciation or coverage Mm -hmm. from a mainstream perspective because people think of racing in North America and they say, okay... NASCAR and IndyCar, that's it. But there's so much more than that, especially when it comes to, I know they're not stock cars, so to speak, but they're very reminiscent of what we're going to see next year with the next-gen car. We're Mm -hmm. going to get to that for sure. But can you tell us what a Trans Am car is like to drive and what the series is like overall? Yeah, the Trans Am series is uh, the oldest running or the longest running road course racing series in North America. Um, It's been around forever. Um, It just, you know, lost some popularity um in the late 90s mid 2000s it lost a lot of popularity it's been coming back um in the 2010s and stuff um the cars are absolutely amazing to drive they are some of the last just pure race car road course cars you can drive uh there's no abs no traction control zero driver aids on them and you're running around there with 850 900 horsepower yeah so these cars they're super raw they're aggressive they have five inch wide exhaust dumps on the driver's side of the car. So they're dumping flames right out the side. Um, they are just so cool to drive and they're cool to, to, to listen to. Um, there's no other car really like it. Anybody that hops into them, they just fall in love with driving them. Um, not to mention we're racing around tracks that are some of the most well-known road course racing tracks in the, in the country, you know, we're racing around tracks like Laguna Seca, Lime Rock, VIR, uh, Road America, 
mm-hmm. mid-Ohio, these huge name places. And uh, these cars are going 180, 190 miles an hour down every one of those straights. Like hone your driving skills, uh, make me successful series racing in Trans Am. I think it helped a ton there. Um, just being able to drive such a high horsepower car um, really helps uh, being able to drive whatever else you want to you go and race afterwards. And, you know, the Trans Am cars are, you know, very similar to like what the new next gen uh, cup car is going to be. You know, I think the cup car is actually based a lot, a lot off of the, uh, off the next gen with single lug sequential gearbox. Um, the chassis is very similar in the way that the chassis is designed. Um, so I think you'll, you'll see that, uh, the racing will be great with it next year. And, you know, they seem like they're more road course oriented. So you never know if I'll get out there for a few, uh, road course races. Oh, trust me. We will get to that. Don't you worry. So I realize that this is going to be a very cliche slash interesting question that you probably don't have the answer to. But you're 23 years old. You're a seven-time Trans Am champ. You won them all in a row from 2014 to 2020 last year. How does that happen? Like, Like, I understand that you're a great driver. But how do you go into a series that young, rip off seven in a row, and that's just like, yeah... He did that. You know what I mean? That, that That's not supposed to happen. So how did you do that? You know, I think, uh, you know, I credit it to a lot of my team. You know, we've put together a really good program in the Trans Am series. Um, we try to get consistent finishes every every race, and that's kind of been our goal as we've gone through uh, the past seven championships we've had is, you know, we won't destroy the car or go off track trying to fight for a win if we got a car that can finish second or third yeah. and just get the points we need. And that's kind of the uh, attitude we had um, towards all the years of the, of the Trans Am series we've raced in. And it just worked out to where, you know, we just get consistent finishes and it puts us up front on the points and we get wins when we can. We get fast laps, we get full positions and it just works out. And, you know, we've somehow locked up seven championships. Um, you know, I, I use that same sort of uh, attitude towards the SRX season. Um, you know, the same thing there, just consistent finishes, um, and it worked out pretty good finishing second in, yeah. in that championship. So sure did. Um, I think it's a kind of strategy that works out pretty good. Um, as long as you can be consistent and run near the front, um, you'll be there in the end. Excuse the naivety that's about to come with this question because I don't know a ton about Trans Am. I know a lot of people listening mm-hmm. probably don't consider it their foremost form of racing expertise. Like, Is the competition in Trans Am just subpar? Are you that good? Is it very equipment based? Is it a mix of all these things? Because like, I mean, Jimmy won seven championships and he won five in a row. And that's something that's considered impossible to do now. Like it's never going to happen. They changed the playoff format because of him. They changed stages because of him. Right. So like Mm -hmm. what, what do you contribute? Or I guess what, what do you think the main reason for ripping off seven in a row was like, was it the fact that you just took to those cars so well, the team was so well, like, what do you think the main factor for you having so much success right after one another? What was that contributing to? You know, I think me and the type of cars kind of worked out really, really good. Like when I first drove one, um, it just kind of clicked and I felt like, okay, this is a car that I know how to control. Um, and it just felt very like in my wheelhouse. Um, so okay. we've always been super fast uh, every time we go out there. But the competition stout too. Uh, we have guys um you know big budget teams and and big name guys out there racing every every race weekend um you have you know legendary road course racers like boris said um still racing out there you know you have uh chris dyson and his whole team from dyson racing 
Um, you know, so one of the biggest uh, ALMS teams from back in the day coming out there and, and running in the, in the Trans Am series, you have Adam Andretti running out there. You have numerous uh, NASCAR guys and, and road course guys from Europe coming into the Trans Am yeah. series as well to run, to, to run ra- uh, races throughout the season. Um, so it all adds up and you, you got a pretty stacked field by the end of the day. Um, so it, it, it makes it a lot of fun and these cars are just so aggressive that a lot of the setup matters. And I think we found a setup that really worked for, for me with the car. Um, and, and we've just been able to be really consistent with it. Um, you know, these races are an hour and uh, 20 minutes long, no pit mm-hmm. stops. So you're on the same tires the whole time. Um, and with that much horsepower, you got to be able to conserve your tires. And, you know, we found a setup and I drive it in a way that's worked out really good to where we're always there in the end of the race. Um, you know, we'll run our fastest laps the last, uh, 15, 20 minutes of the race. Wow. Um, and I think that that's helped a lot with, uh, with how we've, uh, won races and won these championships. What are some of the veterans that are in the series and some people that have been around for a long time? What are they saying to you or what are you hearing them say? when you see this teenager, this young baby-faced kid come in, comes into his own, becomes an adult on and off track, and is ripping off seven titles in a row. Were people hating at the start? Did they eventually come around? Did they have respect for you from the get-go? What was that like? Yeah, you know, in the beginning, it was uh, it was difficult. The guys didn't really uh, want me to race out there. They saw that I was young, and they were like, yeah, this, this guy's just a kid. Uh, who is he to, to be coming out there? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, after we won a few races, you know, won the first championship, it kind of opened up everybody's eyes and they were like, okay, we see what's going on. And, and from then on, you know, I was just another guy that races out there with them. Um, it, it's a super respectful paddock. Um, and I think I, I've, I've earned the respect of, of the rest of the people in the, in the Trans Am field. Um, and I feel that now. Um, so definitely I feel like they respect what I've done with my career now and, um, they put a lot of faith in me moving on with what I'm doing in racing. Um, I know during the whole SRX season, there was uh, three or four events where Trans Am was uh, running the same weekend. Yeah. And every one of those nights that I was racing SRX, uh, half the damn paddock was watch, watching around a TV in the cool. at one of the trailers watching watching this race because, you know, they want to see what the uh, Trans Am kid can go and oh, do yeah. out there in, uh, in some circle track stuff. So. Yep. That's that's really cool support to have. I'm sure that you were like geeking out at those pictures. It was probably a mix of, okay, this is cool that people are watching me. I wish that I was there, but I really want to do well tonight for myself and also to represent Trans Am. You had a lot of different internal yeah. conflicts it, going it, it, on. It, yeah, there, there was a lot of stuff going on, but it was cool to get all the pictures afterwards, you know, yeah. seeing guys that I raced against, guys that, you know, we're, we're friends, but on track, you know, we race each other super hard. But seeing pictures and videos of them cheering me on, watching me on TV racing in SRX, uh, it was pretty cool to see. So uh, it definitely was an awesome experience that we had. At SRX, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, did you and Willie T uh, converse at all about you know his time in Trans Am and how you're now carrying the banner, so to speak? Yeah, me and Willie T, we talked a lot. Um, you know, I've known him for a few years now. Um, so when he got announced he was going to be in SRX, it was super cool because um, me and him get along really well. Um, so the whole season we've been, you know, talking about a bunch of stuff and we would talk about Trans Am and we talk about his, uh, his open wheel days and everything that he's been doing. Um, so he's been, he's been super awesome and mm-hmm. he's been a big, uh, supporter of my career now. Um, and what, what I've been doing over the, uh, over the past year. So, uh, he, he's just an awesome all around guy that, uh, you know, a huge respect for. 
How long have you known him? I've known him for has to be at least three years now. Okay. I think I met him at uh, the Circuit of Americas Trans Dam race a few gotcha. years back. Um, and, you know, we've we talk all the time now. He calls me probably once every every week or once every two weeks now to, yeah. to call me and talk about stuff. So, yep. Feel like he can talk your ear off and he can tell some stories knowing Willie T as uh, I do. Oh, <laughs> uh, he, he, he has some stories for sure and he can definitely oh, yeah. talk. So, uh, but it's always entertaining whenever he has a story to tell. Uh, you're always cracking up laughing. It's always, yeah. uh, it's always a good one. He's not afraid to say what he thinks either. <laughs> yep. Yeah, definitely not. He, uh, he'll say whatever he wants. Oh yeah. Uh, doesn't matter. doesn't matter who's around. No, it does not at all. All right. Let's talk about SRX. Cause as I mentioned off the top, the fact that you're a seven-time Trans Am champ, people may not know you because of that. People probably know you because of SRX being on a national stage, big platform, had a lot of success this season, finished second in the point standings, won at Lucas Oil. We're going to talk about all that, but let's go back to the beginning of that series specifically. Your success in Trans Am led to you getting this specific opportunity, and I know that you had a bit of a relationship with Ray Evernham before with some SCCA runoff stuff. So was he the one that made the call to you and said, hey, I'm starting this thing up. I want you to be a part of it. How did that start? Yeah, you know, uh, me and Ray had met, uh, I believe, three years ago at the SECA runoffs. Um, and so we had always stayed in contact because he was running a vintage GT1 car at SBRA. Um, and, you know, he'd asked for a little bit of advice on setup work and and what he was doing out there. And I'd see him at a bunch of these events. Um and, you know, two years ago, he had mentioned to me that he was trying to start a new racing series. That would be like a one make racing series, kind of reminiscent of what IROC was. Yeah. Um, and if I have any interest in, in doing it when it when it ends up coming to a yes, please. To a version. <laughs> and, you know, I told him, of course, something I'm definitely interested in doing. Um, and then we got to about six months before um, the announcement was made and they were still trying to settle on a schedule. And he had told me, you know, if if they get some road courses on the schedule, he definitely wants to have me come and race. And I told him, you know, I'm up for whatever you want to do. Just let me know. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of where it was left at. And then uh, December of last year, he gave me a call um, out of the blue and said, hey, um, you know, we're sending you over a contract. Do you want to race uh, SRX for the, for the full season this year? And uh, it took me about, you know, two seconds to come up with my <laughs> answer and yep. told him, yeah, I'm I'm in for hundred percent. And, uh, you know, that, that's all that, uh, that's all that was there. So that's interesting though, because people obviously, you know, Trans Am, you're a road course guy. SRX mm -hmm. didn't have a road course this year. It was dirt tracks. It was short track ovals, right? Yep. So what, what made him change his mind from saying, yeah, if we get some road courses, I'll give you a call to, well, we're going to have all short tracks, but I still want you to be a part of this. What changed? You know, I think that was, uh, you know, Ray's been super supportive of what I've been doing over the past uh, past two years. Um, and I think he wanted to see what I can do out there. And, you know, he said, IROC's always invited the Trans Am champion. Um, and it doesn't matter what they've, uh, where they're racing, you know, they always get the invite out. So he had to get me the invite to come and do it. Um, and, you know, I didn't really know what to expect going out there, uh, seeing the schedule, uh, what it was. Um, you know, I was kind of like, man, I've never, never even been to a dirt track before. <laughs> I, I have, I have no idea what I'm going to do out there. Um, but you know, I, I just trusted that, uh, you know, I could figure it out and I could adapt to it pretty quick and, uh, yep. and go for it. 
Well, you did just that. You adapted very quickly. You adapted well. I also read somewhere that you actually upped your fitness and improved your diet in preparation for SRX, and you've kind of carried that now that SRX Season 1 has concluded, finishing off your 2021 racing season. Any particular reason for kind of going that route and improving your off-track health? Was it because you wanted to be physically fit for SRX, or was it something that you've been meaning to do for a while, kind of like everybody else, me included, and you figured that this is a good opportunity to try to get into it. Yeah, you, you know, I definitely wanted to. Uh, I wanted to up what I was doing off off the racetrack um, and take that more seriously. And you know, I saw it as a good opportunity. You know, this is a chance to be out there on national television mm -hmm. um, and and really show what I can do. And hopefully, uh, you know, that would be kind of like my break, my make or break. Uh, you gotta right look here. good too yeah. if you're on national yeah. TV. Yeah. Come on now. Yeah, but. It, Yep, exactly. But yeah, this is like my make or break year. So I was, uh, yeah, wanted, wanted to do everything I could to try and make sure that I can perform the best that I can on track. Um, and if that means, uh, you know, working out even more, uh, off season and working out more, you know, in between races and changing mm -hmm. up diet a little bit, um, I'm, I'm all down to do it. Um, and another reason that I took that more seriously also was not only because of SRX, but also because of the FR America's series I was racing in with open wheel, mm -hmm. um, you know, those open wheel cars are super demanding, a lot of G-forces, no power steering. Um, it takes a lot to be able to race those around the track and be consistent over the course of a hour long race. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I was 100% to be able to run those and, and do what I can do on track and, uh, and perform the way I wanted to. You finished second in the standings, which is obviously a huge, huge deal. But I think the highlight for you and for everybody watching throughout the summer was your battle with Scott Speed at Lucas Oil out yep. of Indianapolis. You win that race. I was in preparation for the interview. I was watching back the ending of that race. Incredible action, incredible stuff. You were sticking in that high groove. You were not to be denied that night. That was such a fun battle to watch. And I'm sure even now, I know you're smiling about it. That probably still gets you going, knowing that you were able to battle some of the best and outduel them on a short track, a really famous one at that, and win an SRX race. The first season of SRX, you beat out some of the best, literally, in the world that has to be an unreal feeling yeah you know that that was uh that was a really surreal feeling that night um you know we got out there and we were decent in the in the practice warm-up and we were we were all right in the first uh in the first heat race and we made an adjustment to the car for the for the second race and something just kind of clicked um i don't know if it was me with the car me learning the track the car setup and whatever was going on, but we, we just, it felt right that night. Um, we started moving up through the field. Um, you know, I got, I got to second place. I got to behind, I, I think it was Scott speed at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, man, you know, I could lead, I could lead some laps out here and, uh, you know, at least, you know, say that I was in the front for a little bit. So, you know, made a move on Scott, got to the front and we were just pulling away. And I'm like, man, I think we have a car that can win this race. And then you're, you know, playing mental games in your head because you're like trying not to get, excited or thinking about mm -hmm. winning the race you just you know you got to focus on what you're doing here focus on every lap every turn making sure you uh you hit your mark you know get on the brakes at the right time uh, roll speed the way you need to get off the turn good all while trying to conserve the tires so then i just uh you know tried to focus as much as i could on not making a mistake and just yep. running my race um you know we did it did a really good job of that um but, you know, there's always something that's going to that's gonna come up, and uh, it was those yellow flags. You know, the, <laughs> they kept throwing yellow flags. Yes, they did. Um, you know, it's a TV show. Ray said it himself. Yeah. Yep, exactly. It's a TV show. 
Um, they threw those flags. There was incidents going on in the back of the field. And, uh, it, you know, a bunch of the group back up. And uh, that high line was really working for me up top. I uh, yes. really liked running up there. Um, so I just made sure, you know, started the every restart. I, I took the high line. And, uh, you know, it was easier in the earlier part of the night um, being on the high line. You know, get off the – I can get off the – for the starts pretty easy. It wasn't spinning the tire as much. Um, but as we went on in the race, the high line really started spinning the tires on the restarts. Uh, so then I started struggling there a little bit. Uh, there was one restart where uh, Scott Speed got ahead of me. I uh, kind of jumped the start um, and then decided to end up uh, restacking us back up. Um, and luckily I was able to, uh, to get back ahead of him again um, on that next restart. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we had went side by side for, Man, I don't know what it what it was. Three, Ten four laps, laps. It felt like yeah. I don't know. It it, it 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 felt like an hour. We were side by side. It was <laughs> the most intense racing I think I've ever done. Yeah. Um, you know, we were up against the wall. He was up against my door the whole time. We were going down the straight. It felt like Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights. You know, we were bashing side by side <laughs> going down going down the straight. You were. And uh, and you know, I I did not know how it was going to end up. I'm like, man, one of us is going to end up in the wall. I think because because we were we were getting any, into each other pretty hard. Mm -hmm. Um. And then he got into me in turn one, uh, real sideways. Um, he lost a ton of a ton of ground, and his hit actually launched me up into the outside wall. You know, I hit the outside wall, and you know there was four laps to go, I think. And yeah. I was like, I'm not losing this race. I just floored it against the wall and just rode the wall around. Oh yeah. Got, got back got back on the straight, and uh, you know another caution came out, and then I, you know, Scott Speed was luckily back a few spots, and so I just had to defend from uh, from Labani out there and um he definitely raced me with some respect out there for sure he was uh he gave me the room i needed to he leaned on me a little bit but it wasn't um you know he could have easily just put me into the wall or took me out there um but yeah you know held on those last few laps and took home a win and that was so incredible there um you know i still get like goosebumps watching those last few laps yeah. when i watch it on on the replays there um because it was such a cool feeling um you know i didn't think Going going into the season, my my goal was just to be competitive, you know, not be in the back of the pack. Um, this, I have no idea how I was gonna. One second, my screen went away for me for a second. Um, um, if I can just not be last, I'll be happy. Um, and then you know we we won the race and it, it kind of changed the whole rest of the season. Everybody saw me a little bit differently after that. They, they saw me as a threat um out there and you know i was pretty competitive from from the end of the season on um and you know ended up finishing second in the championship and i don't think we could do much better than that behind uh behind yeah. tony stewart you know the series owner i think uh that, that's a win in itself you've won hundreds of races trans am f3 srx now right where does that win at Indianapolis rank for you? Can you put it in a certain place? Is it at the very top? Is it in the top five? Because clearly on a national stage like that, and like you said, you weren't expecting to win going into the year or even at the start of that night, and to do it at that place against those drivers, it's incredible. Yeah, I think uh, you know that win for me probably ranks the highest. Um, it, it's probably my favorite win that I think I've had over my career. Um, just because of the level of competition and the guys that I was racing against, right. um, to be able to be, you know, wheel to wheel with Elio Castroneves, Scott Speed, Tony Kanan, Tony Stewart, Crazy. Uh, Bobby Labonte. I mean, these are guys that like, you know, I grew up watching on TV and guys that are still, and guys that are still out there racing like Elio, 
had just won his uh his, his fourth, fourth Indy 500. His fourth Indy 500, I, I believe, like three or four weeks before before nice. the Lucas Oil race, like it had just happened. And you know, here I am racing wheel to wheel with him on track and coming out on top and winning the race. It, it's something that I don't think I'm ever going to forget. It, it's just such a cool experience, and I'm just so thankful for uh, for Ray and for for Tony for letting me go out there and show what I can do on track and and giving me that opportunity. You mentioned Tony, Elio, Kanan, Bobby Labani, Willie T, who you've known before this opportunity, Michael Waltrip, Paul Tracy, who I'm sure ruffled some feathers, uh, Ailey, who's around your age as well and, you know, has done some NASCAR stuff and you have a relationship with dating back before SRX. I mean, these are a who's who list of drivers in North American motorsports. I'm sure that the talks that you were able to have with them, some advice that you got from them, just leaning on them over the the summer stretch, some of those stories had to be awesome. But the advice that you probably got from them, whether or not you were seeking it out or they just decided to tell you some speed secrets and tell you how to do this and how to do that and what to handle with this situation and how to handle this situation, that stuff probably had to be, be invaluable and almost was probably more valuable for you than the experience on track itself. Yeah, you know, exactly, because these guys have done it all. These guys are legends of the sport, and they've been at the very top of, of their disciplines in motorsport. So any advice that they were willing to give me, I would soak up as much as I could. And even just, like, life advice from these guys. These guys, you know, are a lot older than, than me, and, uh, you know, they've seen a lot more, and they've done a lot more. So, uh, you know, to be able to hang around these guys and, and learn from them and, and stuff was, was super helpful for me. Um, and I think the connections that you make meeting these guys um, is, is so awesome. Like me and Tony Stewart, we, uh, you know, I went out to the Knoxville Nationals with him and I spent a week with him sleeping in his motorhome with him. And, you know, we were up till three o'clock in the morning, hanging out at the Knoxville Nationals together for a week. And uh, it was just something really cool uh, to go out there and, and, you know, be able to call him a friend now. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's just super awesome. And then, you know, guys like Elio, um, you know, I, I told Elio a story. Um, when I was out there with him um, about how I think it was maybe uh, six or seven years ago, I was at the St. Pete Grand Prix um, with my mom and I was racing a world challenge in, uh, in GTS out there. And we were walking around the paddock um, and I saw team Penske, um, their, their trailer. And I saw Elio there by his Indy car. And I looked at my mom and I'm like, man, one day I want to be like him. Like that's, that's my goal right there. Um, and so, you know, I told Elio that story when we were uh, at the last race at Nashville because my mom ended up coming out to that race. And I told him that story with her there. And it was just really cool to be able to meet somebody like like that, like somebody that was like your hero growing up. It's incredible. Um, and now you get to, you know, hang out with them and, and, you know, somebody that you're friends with now. It's just super cool. And it was just such an amazing opportunity. I literally got goosebumps when he told me that story. That That's the stuff yep. out of movies. Like, really, you, yep. you are living no, it, your dream. And you, you it, got it, to it, race against that guy who you wanted to be. Yep. It's incredible. Yeah, it, it really is. It is such a cool experience. You think uh, Tony would have let you stay in his motorhome if you would have beaten him for the championship? <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't ask him that question. Yeah, but, don't um, question it. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't question it. But, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a cool time with him over there, um, you know. He had to win his. He had to win the first year yeah. in uh, oh, in that yeah. series. Oh yeah. Um, but he 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 was fast the entire year. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he he put he put together a year that he needed to 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 win it. 
he was consistent, uh, you know, in the front for all of the heat races and, and, and all the mains, he was up there in the top five, every race. And that's yeah. exactly what he needed to do. Uh, especially when we got to the two dirt races, he was on the fire out there. Uh, nobody could really touch him on dirt. Um, so that really helped him a lot towards yeah. the uh, end of the year. I think the name of the series superstar racing experience is very appropriate because it's full of superstars. And although it was racing, it was also an experience, right? I mean, just those drivers, which are incredible names. Like we mentioned, Tony Uri, Todd Parrott, Jeff Hammond, Mike Beam was there like this rotating panel of crew chiefs. And obviously Ray Evernham, who's spearheading the whole thing. CBS sports, Brad Doherty was there. Lindsay Zarniak, Alan Bestwick, the goat was in the booth calling races. Like, there are so many big names associated with this series. And I know that for that race at Lucas Oil, I think Tony Uri was your crew chief for that race. And I assume that you had some relationships and got to work with some of the other rotating panel of crew chiefs throughout the summer as well. Yeah, you know, worked with uh, pretty much all of them throughout the, uh, throughout the course of the year. Uh, you know, I had Tony there at uh, Lucas Oil. And, uh, you know, he gave me some setup advice that, you know, that thing was on fire there at Lucas it worked. Oil. And we used the same. <laughs> You know, we used similar strategy for the rest of the events. Just uh, when we needed it, uh, it worked pretty good. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the names of the guys they had out there is unbelievable. I mean, you know, going into the first year for SRX, we really didn't know what to expect. We had no idea if fans would like it. We had no idea if the TV ratings would be good. Mm-hmm. We had no idea how any of it would run. And every event, it got better and better and better. And the fans seemed to really love it. Um, the TV ratings were amazing for, for what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really just think it was a total success. Um, and, you know, I really hope that I can do it again uh, at some point next year. How has your life changed, if at all, on or off track since SRX? Because, like you said, the TV ratings, I mean, over a million people were watching you win a race on a national stage, beating out legends. And even though you're a seven-time champ in Trans Am, Trans Am, I don't think they have a million people watching their races every single week. So you are exposed to a ton more people than you ever have been before. Yeah, you know, um, it, it's changed a little bit of stuff in my personal life. Um, you know, sometimes I've been recognized now. People will see me. And, you know, most of the time when fans recognize me, it's now because of SRX. It's not because of anything else that I've done you know, they see me and they're like, Oh, you were, you were in that Tony Stewart series. And I'm like, yeah, that was me. I was, I was the guy in that series. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, people recognize me there and, and it's cool, you know, throughout the, the, the SRX season, you know, they had all the SRX driver gear, the merchandise and stuff um, from the start of the first race at Stafford to the last race at Nashville. Um, it was nuts to see how many fans were wearing my stuff, wearing hats, wearing shirts, yeah. Um, turns out all my stuff at the, at the merchandise trailer was sold out by the end of the, by the end of the wow. race at Nashville, which that's, was, which was awesome. really cool. Um, you know, it, it was just cool. You know, I walked around the grandstands a little bit before the race started just to hang out for a little bit. And, uh, you know, you see fans wearing my stuff and it was just such a cool experience, um, to feel like, you know, you feel like you made it in a, in a little, little bit of a way, um, you know, not yeah. totally there where I want to be, but you know, we're on the right track. So is it weird for you to see fans like wearing your t-shirts and your name on t-shirts and stuff? Cause again, like it, you had a ton of success, but it's just weird at the same time. Yeah, it is weird. It, it, it was, you know, I had to get used to it and I had to, uh, 
had to deal with it but it, it was it was cool it was it was super awesome oh, yeah. to see him wearing my stuff you know a lot a lot of kids were wearing my gear um that's that's what it mostly was was, was kids loved loved my stuff because they saw me out there and i was uh, you're the youngest you know, the one young kid out there <laughs> i was a young kid out there racing and you know yeah. I, I was the one they wanted to cheer for um and, you know it, it was cool you got, got got a lot of support throughout it um when they would do the driver uh driver announcements at the beginning of of the races you know fans are chanting my name which is pretty cool <laughs> That's awesome. It was just uh, it, it was just fun. It, it was all around just a super fun fun time for all those six uh, six weeks. You mentioned that story that you uh, you told Elio um, at the end of the season. Any other times throughout the summer when you were starstruck at all? When you're like on the grid and you see a driver or you see somebody that you were starstruck? Or since you've been around racing your whole life and you've already probably met a lot of these guys over the years, that probably didn't happen for you. You can correct me if I'm wrong though. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I was probably the most starstruck just at the first event when we got to Stafford, um, just meeting everybody. Overwhelming. Um, you know, I had never <laughs> met Tony Stewart before. Yeah, it, it, it was over, it was overwhelming to see that many big names. Um, and then, you know, once you meet them all, you realize these guys are, you know, they're so down to earth. They're they're really cool, cool guys to hang out with. Yeah. Um, and you really you really get pretty close to them over the course of uh, of six weeks. You know, you see them every every weekend. Yeah. Um, for six weeks. So, you know, we're always out there and, and it wasn't like, you know, we would be in every, we in a separate trailer and then you would just go out there and race and that was it. And there was two driver, driver lounge trailers, six of us in one, six of us in the other. And they would alternate every weekend. You know, they just randomly draw on who you're going to be hanging out with. So most of the, most of the time we're there for the whole weekend, we're all hanging out in the driver lounge talking. And, you know, I think one of the coolest ones was, um, was we were over at, at, uh, at Knoxville and I had Elio, uh, Tony Kanon, Paul Tracy, um, and a few other guys in, in, in my trailer with me. And Elio had his fourth, uh, Indy 500, uh, ring on, bling, bling. And, you know, he, yeah, he showed us all it, and, you know, he was telling the story of, you know, the lead up to the, to the race and how the race went and just everything about it. And it was just cool to, to sit there and it's like, you know, People would would kill to be like a fly on the wall in that conversation there, just to I listen to, to to his story about 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 the whole month yeah. of May leading up to to the race, and you know we're just hanging out in there talking about it. It was just such a cool experience. Um, you know, I had to like pinch myself for a second. I'm like, man, this yeah. is like real life. This is this is so cool. It's nuts. Um, so so yeah, it was it was fun. So I mentioned earlier, right? Ray was going to call you and, and have you do a couple short track or road course races, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And then he says, well, we're going to do all short tracks and a dirt track instead, but we still want you here because we want the Trans Am champ. I rock. We think you can show really what you got in the tank. So how did you adjust to racing on short tracks, all of them, instead of a road course, you know, centric schedule? Because your background is essentially all road courses and this was all short tracks. So that had to be a big adjustment for you. You know, I had only done, um, I think, one or two short track races in my life before I got Man. to the first race at Stafford. Where were they? I had done, I had done the, uh, I think I had done a race at uh, Myrtle Beach. Okay. In in the uh, late model with Rev Racing. R.I.P. Um, and I think I'd done one at, at New Smyrna, and I think that was it. Okay. That, that's all the. So short you had two under your I belt, had. and then thrown to the yeah. wolves at SRX going yeah. out there and you know i just had to totally change the way i, I your driving style works out there i got out to the first event at stafford and we did the practice laps 
and I was burning the damn brakes off the car, you know, <laughs> driving it like a road course a little bit. And, uh, you know, Tony Stewart pulled me aside and he was like, Hey, you got to fix that. You got to do this. And he told me what to do. And, yeah, you know, he kind of went over it with me. And then the next time I went on track, boom, we were right on where we should be. Um, and from there, just, you know, every event I got to just kind of, you know, had to retrain my mind a little bit on what I was doing. But as it went on, I felt like I adapted more and more each time. Um, and we got quicker and quicker. Um, but it, it was different. It was different. But at the end of the day, you know, a race car is a race car and a track's a track. I feel mm -hmm. like if you're, uh, if you know what you're doing out there, you can adapt to anything. Um, and that's kind of what I try to do. That leads me right into my next question. Professional transition right there. So you are a diverse driver because this year alone, you've won an SRX, you've won in Trans Am, and you've won an F3 all this season in this calendar year. That's something that, as you mentioned right there, I assume you take a, a lot of pride in that in being a diverse race car driver that can hop in anything, any track, anytime, anywhere, regardless of what the setup is, however much track time or laps you've had in that specific vehicle, learn, adapt quickly and go. That seems to be something you take a lot of pride in, right? Yeah, I think, you know, that was probably one of my biggest takeaways from this racing season was being able to win a race in all three different series uh, in totally different kinds of discipline. Mm -hmm. You know, the Trans Am car is so different than the F3 car, even though they're both on a road course, they are so different of a car. Um, and I had never raced open wheel before. This is my first year ever doing it. Um, so to win a race, you know, at mid Ohio in the F3 car well, was amazing. And then we just backed it up with two more wins back to back at VIR um, in the F3 car this last weekend. So, you know, to be able to be successful in that and then also go out there and win on a short track that I really have no experience in also um, was cool. And that's kind of, you know, always been my thing being a driver is I want to be be able to drive anything, you know, if the team wants to put me in a certain type of car, right. You know, let, let me go and do it. I can figure it out. I can adapt to it. I can be quick. And I think that's what I showed this year was that I could race any type of car you give me and we can be competitive and, and even win a race. So, so speaking of NASCAR, which, uh, I know that relates to SRX tangentially, right? We talked about how the next gen car is really similar to what you drive in Trans Am. And I know that you have NASCAR experience, you know, going back to when we first met 2018 Watkins Glen, you were a part of rev racing and the drive for diversity at that point right there. You also made one Xfinity start at road America, which I totally forgot mm -hmm. about. Uh, I remember that. So, I mean, people may be looking from the outside saying, why, why hasn't this guy gotten a fair shake? Why is he not in NASCAR? He should be in NASCAR. He clearly has a skill set to do it, but you were part of the drive for diversity program. You had those two road course starts and things kind of seem to just dry up and not materialize. So from your perspective, take us through why that didn't end up happening, end up working out in your favor. I know that there were some scheduling issues for sure on the Trans Am side that kind of prevented you from being able to do that on a more consistent basis. I also assume that you'd probably welcome a more extended opportunity and extended stay in NASCAR. Yeah, you know, I think uh, the scheduling conflict is probably the biggest deal. That was probably the biggest reason that um, things didn't work out as much there. Um, and then they also, you know, didn't want to really put me in the circle track racing as much because they thought I didn't have the experience with it. So they put mm -hmm. me in the road course races. But, you know, I think if they would have just given me more of a chance to go out there and run, I think we would have been right where we needed to be. You um, showed them at Lucas that, Oil. Right? Yeah, I think I, I think I proved that with the uh, SRX season that Damn we had right. out there. Um, but, yeah, I totally would welcome, a, you know, more, more ventures into the NASCAR kind of world of things. 
um, whether it's in trucks or Xfinity or even some cup races, um, something I definitely would love to do uh, going forward. It just depends on the uh, right opportunity to hop out there. Yeah. I mean, your first start in NASCAR in the K&N series, you put it on pole at New Jersey and you finished second to Will Rogers, who at that point could not be beaten on road courses. So clearly you made a splash, right? And then Watkins Glen, you had that race as well with Rev Racing and things just seemed to stop after that. So at that point, like, take me to your mindset. Were you more so frustrated that you didn't end up getting a fair shake and scheduling didn't work out? Were you saying, you know what, maybe it's not meant to be. I'll just go focus on Trans Am again. Have you, up until that point, like, did you want to go to NASCAR and do you still want to do that? Like, take me to your mindset in terms of what you were feeling at that moment and the months that followed. Yeah, you know, um, at that point, it was kind of just, uh, you know, got to move on and got to keep racing whatever I can. So, mm-hmm. uh, turned my focus back to Trans Am. Uh, you know, won the championship out there for that. And then, uh, you know, just kept my head down and, and kept racing what I was doing. Um, and, you know, just hope that the performance that I do on track would open up new opportunities down the road. Um, and it ended up working out there, um, you know, going into this year, uh, running three different series um, was super awesome. I mean, two of them being brand new to me uh, with totally mm-hmm. different teams. Um, it really worked out pretty well. And uh, I think I got to showcase everything that I wanted to this year. And I think this year has definitely been a breakout year for my career. Yeah. Um, that hopefully will set the course for where I go in the future, uh, whether it's more down an open wheel route or more down a, a NASCAR route. I think I'm fine with either one. Um, I really enjoy racing both. Um, you know, I wouldn't mind wherever, wherever I end up. Um, we'll see what happens in the next, uh, next few months. Hopefully, uh, some cool stuff will be announced pretty soon. Um, but we'll just keep moving forward as we do. As you mentioned, I know you'd be open to IndyCar as well. Heck, if Mercedes came calling and Lewis Hamilton decided to retire, I'm sure you'd be open to getting in that seat too. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, and I know I'll drive anything. I know you will, and and you'll do it well. And Willie T has mentioned that the road to Indy program and you know a push for diversity on that side of things in terms of an open wheel route that is a perfect opportunity for IndyCar as a sanctioning body to put somebody like you who is accomplished, who is ready and up for the task in the car. Have there been any conversations with Anybody on Roger Penske side of things or in the IndyCar paddock about potentially putting you in a car for this upcoming season? Uh, you know, there's definitely been uh, some conversations there. Um, you know, things are kind of up in the air right now. They're kind of getting shaken out, and, you know, mm-hmm. we'll see how things go. Um, you know, we'll know more in the next uh, in the next month or so. We'll be able to announce some, some pretty cool things for next year, hopefully. Um, okay. So we'll see what happens there. Hopefully, uh, hopefully – you have a pretty cool, well, have a pretty cool schedule for next year of uh, racing some different things. Um, we'll just have to have to wait and see what happens. Just won a championship in IndyCar, Chip Ganassi. I know that you did a test for CGR at Daytona a few years back. It wasn't mm-hmm. an IndyCar; it was in a sports car. Did anything end up coming of that, or was that kind of just like a one-off? It was kind of just a one-off thing with uh, with Chip. There, he wanted to try me out in the car. Um, you know, it was at the start of the season; they already had their driver lineup set, but they wanted to just see what I can do. Um, Mm. unfortunately it was the last year of that program being run as well. Um, but it just helped put me on chips radar. So he knew, um, you know, I'm a driver that's ready to go for, for him if he needs. Um, so it definitely, uh, was something pretty cool to do. Um, and you know, we'll see what, what shakes out in the next, uh, in in the future for me. You know, I'm, like I said, I'm happy wherever I end up, whether it's in a NASCAR route or whether it's an open wheel route. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm happy behind the wheel of a race car. doesn't matter what it is. 
I know that Marcus Limonis has been a big supporter of racing. He obviously sponsored mm-hmm. SRX with Camping World. And I know on Twitter, he basically was calling his shot saying, hey, we got to get Ernie in a, in a truck or something. Let's make this happen. And I was listening to another podcast a while ago, and I know that you had a phone call scheduled with him, I think, for that week some sometime later on in the summer. Did anything end up coming of that? Did you end up talking with Marcus, and did anything come to fruition? Yeah, we're still working out some things there. Hopefully, uh, you know, we'll try and get into a truck at some point for next year. Um, you know, it's a little bit late for the season now. They're already into the playoffs. And, right, right. Um, we're kind of thinking a, a road course would be pretty cool to hop out there and do. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see what happens for next year. Hopefully, we can uh, we can get out there. I know that trucks just got announced to be racing at uh, Mid Ohio, which is really yep. cool. Track also, gun, Lucas Oil. Good. Yep. Yeah. Also, Lucas Oil. I saw We've that. Had some success so, there. Know, uh, <laughs> Yep. Yeah. So two tracks we've been pretty uh, mm-hmm. successful at. So we'll see what we can work out for next year. Maybe we can get a few uh, cool one-off races. Yeah. Um, but we'll see what happens. I know that you're probably going to say the same thing you've said for the last like five questions, but I have to ask continually. Any conversations with any NASCAR owners on the Xfinity trucks or heck, maybe even the cup side about maybe not this year specifically since it's late in the going, but for next year, potentially putting you in the car or the truck for some road courses or even maybe some ovals as a one-off because again, you know, you now have national recognition with their SRX exposure mm-hmm. and experience. So there's definitely got to be some interest in you from the Xfinity truck or cup side from owners. Yeah, no, there definitely is. We've had some conversations there. Um, you know, we're just kind of going as going through the motions and seeing what happens there. Um, you know, I, I wish there was more that we can be, announced or talked about at this moment now but yeah, yeah. you know we'll kind of uh see how see how things shake out you know how you know how things go in the off season mm-hmm. um and hopefully uh hopefully it'll be pretty cool by the end of the by the end of the year and early next year we'll have some uh, some pretty cool stuff out there what's on tap for the rest of the year for you is, is the trans m season over i don't know <laughs> uh we have one more event for us um you know at the beginning of november uh okay. we're out at circuit of the americas uh, we have the final Trans Am race there, and we also have the final uh, race weekend for the F3 series. Uh, so looking forward to closing out both those series over there. Hopefully we can uh, try and repeat on our uh, success over at VIR last weekend, get some mm-hmm. get some more wins in FR, um, and then uh, try and you know get some wins in Trans Am. We've had a pretty rough year, a pretty, uh, pretty rough go of it in Trans Am this year. I think the, running so many different series, it took a lot of time yeah. away from my Trans Am effort. Um, sure. So if we can just go out there and try and try and win some races and and try and just show our speed that we've had all year, we just had you know bad luck take us out of take us out mm-hmm. of races that we could have won. But if we can go out there and just end the season on a high note, it'd be a really cool thing. How's it feel now? You're not going to be champ. Your seven time reign is going to be dethroned. Part partly because of SRX and and the conflicts, obviously. So who knows if if you didn't have that, you probably would be going for eight. But wow, what a yeah, run yeah, it was! But yeah. all good thing must come to an end. Yeah, you know, we're still second in the points in Trans Am, which is awesome. Um, you and, you know, if, if if I had to sacrifice the Trans Am championship for the success that I've had in F3 and in SRX this year, I would gladly have it, mm-hmm. gladly do that 100 times over just like that. Uh, because I think everything that I've done this year in, in F3 and in SRX um, speaks a lot of volumes for me as a driver, and hopefully we'll uh, carry on from there. Last thing for me, uh, you mentioned F3. We didn't really talk about that a lot, but as you mentioned, it's your first year doing that open wheel cars. People will hear F3 and they'll think that it's a Formula One feeder series. Uh, it is not, 
but it is similar in a way to Formula One cars, being that it's open wheel and it's on road courses. So can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about that series and your limited experience in those cars? Yeah, you know, the F3 series, um, it, it is an open wheel feeder series, basically. Um, you know, it's running the, it's it's a, F, it's a FIA F3 chassis. So it's very similar to the FIA F3 cars that run in Europe um, mm-hmm. for the for the world championship there. Um, and it's a pretty cool series to run out there. It's super competitive. Um, the cars are super fast and they're fun to drive. And if you win the championship in that series, you get a full paid for ride in Super Formula in Japan, which is basically Japan's version of F1. Oh, yeah. And from there, you know, the, the you can pretty much go anywhere from there. So it's a, it's pretty cool. Um, it's been fun to race in. Uh, we've missed I've missed four or five races of, of this of the championship because of SRX. I wasn't there for a few races and we actually just got moved into third third in the points after the two wins we've had at VIR. Good deal. Um so to be third in points after after missing four or five races is pretty cool. Um you know hopefully we can uh, we can try and maybe take second in the points by the end of the weekend at, at Texas. We'll see how that goes. The points lead is out of the question, but if we can be in that top three still at the end of the year, mm-hmm. um for my first year in open wheel racing, I'll take it. So that'd be that'd be cool, you, you know finishing in the top three in the championship of every series I raced in this year, I definitely will, uh, will take that three different series. That would be, that'd be yep. sick. Yep. We'll see what happens. Yes. Yes, you will. Well, Ernie, this has been an awesome chat, man. I, it was great to catch up with you because as, as we mentioned yep. at the start, it's been a long time. And I, I think I speak on behalf of every NASCAR fan listening. We really, really hope to see you in stock cars next year in some former capacity. We hope that it's in a cop Xfinity or truck series ride. And I'm telling you, if you're an owner listening, no better driver to put on a road course than this cat right here, Ernie Francis Jr. So best of luck for the rest of the year in Trans Am, F3, whatever you decide to hop in, get that top three and you can probably check something off your bucket list because that'd be pretty badass. Yep, for sure. Thank you. It was great talking with you again. Yeah, man. Hopefully we'll see you soon. Yep, for sure. And we're back. Big thank you to Ernie. I did not go through any PR, any marketing company, any agency, whatever. I went to Ernie's website. I had some trouble accessing the contact form. So I texted him. I said, hey, trying to schedule something with you. What times work for you? And he was super professional, super accommodating, and super generous with his time. So thank you again, once again, Ernie. Appreciate your time, brother. It was great to catch up. And Hopefully we'll see you at the racetrack soon, whether that be in the IndyCar paddock, in the NASCAR garage, whatever it is. Hope to see you soon, buddy. You deserve to be in a race car more. Let's briefly talk about Kansas Speedway. The drivers say wholeheartedly that besides Homestead, which is a favorite for obvious reasons, Kansas is probably the best mile and a half track besides Homestead, right? Especially for this package with 550 horsepower. This track, for whatever reason, lends itself to good racing. And it's not just on restarts. It's throughout the race, honestly. And that's what Denny Hamlin has said. That's what Joey Logano has said. A lot of other drivers in Cup and Xfinity point to Kansas as a really good track and a barometer for good racing with this specific package. And it has been for years. And a lot of the drivers also point to the repave and the asphalt that happened a couple years back. They say that this should kind of be the gold standard and every other track that gets repaved, whatever it is with the aging, with the asphalt, with the climate, whatever it is, this should be the standard. I don't know how that gets replicated. I don't know if that's able to be replicated. I guess time will tell because tracks are always going to have to be repaved, right? I mean, we're seeing Atlanta going through that 
right now. But regardless, I'm excited for Kansas this weekend because I want to see if Kyle Larson can keep up his hot streak. I want to see if Joey Logano can block his way like he did last year to a victory because he needs one after blowing an engine at Texas. What about Truex? He needs a good run this weekend at Kansas as well. He hit the wall late at Texas. What about Ryan Blaney? He's been good there, but not great. Can he stay above the cut line? Can Kyle Busch stay above the cut line? Can Chase Elliott move above the cut line? There's a lot of different storylines going on, and it all is going to happen this weekend at Kansas Speedway. NBC Family and Networks has your coverage this Sunday with the Hollywood Casino 400. Also going head-to-head against the Austin Grand Prix. Why? Why can't we just work together? A rising tide lifts all ships, people. Do not schedule motorsports head-to-head against each other. <coughs> NASCAR, <coughs> IndyCar, <coughs> Formula One. Please, we want to watch these things individually and appreciate them for what they are. So let's try to do a little bit better moving forward, okay? Blog Nuts of the Week! Cue that funky music, white boy. Not going to run through everything from the last like two to three weeks because that would be a bit of an overkill. But I will say a couple major things that happened towards the tail end of last week that I may have mentioned in the podcast if I had adequate internet access last week. So let's talk about Tony Stewart Racing because they are starting an NHRA team next year with Matt Hagen and Tony Stewart's fiance, Leah Pruitt. This is separate from Stewart Haas Racing. This is Tony Stewart Racing. They have some dirt track teams in the world of Outlaw Late Models and Sprint Cars, and now they are also expanding to NHRA. So interesting happenings over there. Liberty University, they've signed a five-year contract extension with Hendrick Motorsports, presumably going to keep sponsoring William Byron as he is not necessarily signed for five more years, but the assumption points towards he's going to remain there long term. Brandon Jones is returning to Joe Gibbs Racing with Menard's sponsorship for all races next season. That's a big, big deal for him and for Joe Gibbs Racing. Nicky Bobby, former guest on the show, Nick Sanchez. He's going to run several Xfinity Series races for BJ McLeod Motorsports next season. Congratulations to Nicky Bobby. Good to see good things happening to good people. Dean Thompson's going to run Phoenix in the Truck Series, making his debut with Nice Motorsports. He's been running as a regular in the Arca Menard Series West this past season and uh, also won the Irwindale Track Championship in the late model division, so be on the lookout for that. Some other news, including Ty Dillon. He's full-time at GMS for next season. Team Hesemans Racing from the Euro Series. They announced that they're going to be part-time next year in the Cup Series. The next-gen multi-day test happened at Charlotte. A lot of stuff happened while I was kind of off the grid and gone. I know I still gave you guys an episode, but... I didn't hit on some big news and notes, so I wanted to make sure that I touched on those. And last but not least, Carson Ware has been indefinitely suspended by NASCAR. He was arrested for assault on a female among some other charges on Wednesday afternoon in Salisbury, North Carolina. Just unfortunate circumstances for the Ware family, for everybody involved, but hopefully uh, justice will be served and uh, we'll get more information as it becomes available. And I will give that information to you guys but what we know right now is that Carson Ware is indefinitely suspended by NASCAR for that arrest that'll wrap things up for episode 130 of Victory Lane 2.0 thank you guys so much for listening as always if you like what you heard here today do me a big favor leave a rating leave a review subscribe to the podcast Apple Spotify Google SoundCloud you know the deal wherever you get your pods we should be there if we're not let me know I will fix or try to fix Next week, I can tell you who we're having on the show. 
Brian Ellis leading into Martinsville. Going to be a very, very fun, informative, great conversation for you guys to listen to with some D.C. ties. So anybody from D.C., Raja, if you're listening, you're going to like that. So can't wait for you guys to hear that. But again, this has been a great episode. I really enjoyed chatting with Ernie, and I think you guys are going to enjoy my chat with Ryan Ellis next week as well. Peace and love, my dude and dudettes. Good to be back with you on normal circumstances. Enjoy Kansas this weekend, and I will catch you on the flip side.